And so frequently, if I get stories from volunteers that I haven't read before, and I'll be sitting there and all of a sudden I'll be crying. It feels good to have that feeling and to be reminded of this emotional undercurrent of connection that we have with all the people who are around us. Welcome to the Life Story Coach podcast, where you'll hear interviews, tips, and advice on the craft and business of personal history and life story writing with your host, Amy Woods Butler. Hello, friends. This is Amy, and this is the show where we talk about growing our life story business, helping clients save their memories and life stories in books, audios, videos, and more so that they can share them with their family and friends and future generations. And today we're doing something special. Today is the first time that I have two guests on and a brief introduction to each of them. Thor Ringler is a poet and a therapist. He works as a writer at the VA hospital in Madison, Wisconsin, and he manages My Life, My Story. That's the program that we're going to be talking about on this episode. Thor has an MFA in poetry from the University of Pittsburgh and an MS in marriage and family therapy from Edgewood College, which I just love those that combination, poetry and therapy. I think that's great. Mm-hmm. Susan Nathan is a physician and she's a geriatrician and hospice and palliative medicine doctor at the VA Boston Healthcare System. She's also an instructor in medicine at Harvard Medical School and an adjunct instructor in medicine at Boston University School of Medicine. She's the site director for My Life, My Story Project at the VA Boston Hospital. And she's interested in the role of patient story in healthcare, as well as education around serious illness communication. So welcome to the show, Susan and Thor. Thank you. Thank you. I was really happy to find out about this this uh, program, which I'd never heard before, but I was talking to somebody um, just a, probably a few episodes back now who has a website called My Life, My Stories, and she has set up a nonprofit um, story gathering organization. She has volunteers write stories for people, um, and because of the similarity in the name, I landed on your webpage, or, or I guess it was more some information about the program. Um, so I was very happy to hear that there's something in place that the Veterans Administration is doing. So Susan, um, you and I, in a previous conversation, you told me about how you first um, got introduced to the program, and it had to do with a meeting that you had with a Marine. So can you start off by telling us that story? Sure, sure. So I was taking care of a Vietnam-era Marine veteran in our inpatient hospice unit. And by the time I met him, he was quite sick, and he couldn't really communicate anymore. And he didn't have any family who were visiting him, and he didn't have any friends. And he was just there in the room and in the bed. And what I had been told coming into it was that he had had a lot of pain, but that he hadn't wanted to take pain medicine because he was a Marine and he was stoic. And that's pretty much all I knew about who he was as a person separate from the medical details. So I was looking through his chart and just trying to get more information about the person. And I came across one of these stories and he had written it with a social work intern just about five months before I met him. And it was his story and his words. And the themes in his story were about love and family and loss and a lot of guilt over not being there for his family, a lot of guilt about his health conditions. And he said, I I should have listened to the doctors. I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. And the part about his military service, of course, it was in there. And it was just, it was so much different than 
our version of his story, which had sort of taken this these few facts, which were he was a Marine and he was stoic and he didn't want pain medicine. And then at this end of his life, those facts sort of took over his whole personality. And it was just such a contrast to in his own telling, you know, how much there it was part of it. But there was a lot more to the story that that I wouldn't have known because he, he wasn't able to tell me at that time. And there was no one else around who could tell me. And so hearing his own words, it was almost like he was able to speak to me from the chart in a way. And it was it really changed the way I was able to see him and I was able to care for him and how connected I felt to him. Um, at this time in his life. And that's sort of how I came across this project. Susan, thank you for sharing that story. Thor, you are one of the founders of My Life, My Story program. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is and how it's implemented? Yeah, sure. Um, so the program started um, at least in, in Madison five years ago in 2013. And it's a pretty simple process. Um, I mean, Pretty intuitive, I would say. Uh, we um, interview veterans here, and, and most of the vets who we interview are on inpatient units here at the Madison VA. Um, <clears throat> we go around from room to room on three or four of the units here at the hospital, and we ask veterans if they'd be interested in sharing um, their story with their VA care team. And um, we get a lot of interest from the vets who we talk to. And once we explain the program and the interviews take anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour, uh, we ask vets to talk about their lives and we ask them to share what they'd feel comfortable sharing with their with their providers at the VA. Um, after the interview, we write up a short story. It's a narrative told in their voice in the first person using their words. Um, and after we get the story written up, we review it with a veteran. We can do that uh, with them in person, or we can do it by mailing them the story if they've left the hospital. Uh, once we get a approved version of the story, uh, we print out copies of the story for the vet to share with his or her family. And we also put a copy of the story into the veteran's medical chart. And that's what Dr. Nathan saw when she was uh, looking through the chart of the Marine she was just talking about. That's the part that I think is, well, that's one of the, the elements that I find very interesting. The fact that this is a narrative that's going into a medical chart um, where, you know, I'm, I'm just... Yeah, I'm not in the medical field, but I know whenever I go to the doctors now, any doctor that I visit, either the nurse or the doctor is sitting there with um, with some sort of electronic device, you know, whether it's a laptop or a little handheld thing, and they're putting codes in, I'm assuming. Um, it has nothing to do with any kind of narrative. And so I think this is very interesting because it's almost... Um, it's almost a little bit old fashioned, you know, how we used to have family doctors who used to know a lot more about us. So, Susan, I've, I've heard the term narrative medicine. Is that something that you're familiar with? And if you are, can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Sure. So narrative medicine, it's a term that was coined by Dr. Rita Sharon, who's at Columbia. And it's been around for a while now, but really starting around 2001. And it's the use of narrative or narrative style writing and and integrating it into healthcare. And so it can be used in a lot of different ways. So one of the ideas is for clinicians to write and reflect on their in a narrative fashion on their own experiences as a way to process, you know, what we go through. 
Um, there are elements of writing with our patients. There are elements where the patients write. And um, it's like what you're saying, Amy, it's sort of a, a contrast to what you might typically think of, which is, you know, a lot of codes and a medication list. And so it's and the, the hope and the idea between narrative medicine is that having these narratives and having these stories um, builds empathy and helps us connect as people and not just have this sort of transaction um, of healthcare, which is, you know, one of the criticisms of, of healthcare today. So the hope is to humanize the experience. And that's, that's what narrative, yeah, what narrative medicine can do. And that's exactly what you experienced with the Marine mm-hmm. um, yeah. that you started off talking about. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. So um, Thor, can you tell us a little bit about what prompted um, you and, and the others to start this program? Was there something in your own experience or, or was this just a need that you saw that had to do with veterans? Yeah, um, good question. So I was, the initial, the actual idea um, came from the folks who hired me. <laughs> and that, those were two um, psychiatrists here at the Madison VA, um, Dr. Ahern and Dr. Cron. And they had um, written a grant um, to pilot the project, um, which was this idea of, you know, inter- having writers and interview vets and writing up their stories and putting them in the chart. So I was brought on at that initial stage of the hiring process where they, where they brought people on for this six-month pilot project. Um, I would say that my contributions to the project were just given, giving the stories kind of the form and the shape that they have in the chart. So um, coming up with the idea of, you know, it being a thousand words, it always being told in the veteran's voice and it always being reviewed by the vet before it could go in the chart. So those are the elements that I introduced to it from my own writing background. Um, and for me, it was just critical to have those things be part of the process um, to make it different from what else was in the record and also make it genuine and something that the veteran had control over. Um, most notes that are in the chart are not patient authored. <laughs> um, all of them aren't. And this is the only one that is. And um, so it's unique in that way, as as Dr. Nathan already mentioned and you mentioned as well. So for me, I think the thing that really, um, I mean, I'm really drawn to the, to the stories of vets just from my own experience working in a, in a VA um, counseling center for combat veterans uh, called Vet Centers. And I really uh, grew to um, really appreciate the, the struggles that veterans have gone through and also just their stories. And so this is a way to really kind of honor those stories and make them have a real meaning, uh, not only to the vet and their family, but also to the providers who care for them. So... That's part of it. What makes it so interesting is, you know, um, the the listeners and and I, you know, anybody who's involved in the life story business, you know, we already value people's stories. But this actually sounds like it has um, it contributes to the the well being, the physical well being, and the and the care that's being given given to the patients. Susan, can you tell us a little bit about how the program runs in Boston? Who's doing the interviewing and how much do the the doctors and the nurses actually get involved with the process? Sure. So in Boston, the majority of the people who do the interviewing and writing are different students and interns and residents and fellows. So all of these different 
learners who come through VA Boston as part of their educational experience. And they come from a diverse background of health and social professions from medicine to social work to psychology to pharmacy um, to physician assistant. And so for a large number of these learners, it's just integrated into their experience. So one of the goals of coming here through the VA for your training is to learn about, you know, veterans experience. So how better to learn about a veteran's experience than to talk to a veteran and, you know, ask them and listen and hear about their experience in the form of their life story. So most of our writers are are in training. And the hope is that seeing their patient and having this experience this at this point early on will sort of impact the way they think about the way they care for people going forward, whether they you know work in the VA or whether they go out into the community. And we also have staff members who do it. I do a lot of the stories on my own patients, and we have um, we've had nurses do it, and doctors, and nurse practitioners, and speech pathologists. So a lot of there are a lot of people who read the stories, and then there are some people who want to do more. And so there's, there's room for all of us. We have a few volunteers, but just because in, in VA Boston, um, we have a lot of, we have over 3000 learners per year from all different backgrounds and training groups. So this is, this is sort of who we have. And so it just seems like an intuitive thing to integrate it into the experience when they're in VA Boston. And the program is not that old. So have you actually seen a difference in the way that the learners, you know, whether it's interns or, you know, nurse practitioners, have you seen any change in their attitude or have, does it, does it seem like it's helping them see their patients in a fuller way? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, So some of it is anecdotal. We have some objective evaluation that we've done that it, you know, helps with various patient-centered care competencies. That's okay. Life story writers, we're all about the anecdotes. Right. So the (laughs) anecdotes, I mean, even just yesterday, I, I talked to one of our medicine residents and she said, when I see the stories, I know I I don't want to read them during the day because I know they're going to make me cry. So she waits till the end of the day to read the stories on her patients. That in and of itself says, you know, says a lot. Um, You know, when is the appropriate time to cry during your work day? But just that in, you know, in such a high stress time that's residency, um, that that reading a note in a chart from the computer can evoke such a such a strong response. that that's pretty impactful. And and as somebody who does spend a lot of time looking at notes in a medical chart, um, most of them are very dry and consist of a lot of acronyms and numbers and lab values, which is not a very um, empathy building experience. So yeah. Right. Yeah. How about for you personally? Has it um, has it affected the way that you see patients? Not, I mean, obviously there's been specific cases where sure. it's in, impacted you a lot, but in general, do you think that you approach your your sessions with your patients any differently now? Oh yeah, I've done a lot of these stories, and a lot of the ones that I do are with people, so older adults or people who are approaching the end of life, and so. At the end, when you have this finished product and then I can give it to them and they have it for themselves or they give it to their family or the family sends us a letter and says, you know, we read this for the eulogy, that's very impactful. And that's knowing that this is a concrete thing that at the end of the day, whatever the outcome is with what happens to the person, they'll have this tangible thing that 
you know, that we worked on together, that just reinforces, um, you know, how important this is. And I think practically speaking, I've only been in the VA now for about three years. Um, my, my father's a Korean War veteran, uh, but he, he never went to the VA. Um, but I, I'm constantly um, surprised. These stories are always really, really surprising. And I think what I love about them is that they just challenge any assumptions that that we might bring into the situation about, you know, what it what it means to be a Vietnam veteran or what it, what a Korean War veteran looks like or what you might expect. And it's just it's constantly surprising. And I think it it reminds me to be humble and to check uh, any sort of assumptions that I have about a person or their life or their experiences at the door and uh, just go back directly to the source. And, and you can always ask if you do it in a curious and humble way. So. That's how that was the word that came to my mind. It must be very humbling yeah. because, you know, so many of these veterans have, um, I'm not sure if either of you are veterans yourself, but I'm not. And, but I've done um, life stories for several veterans and it's incredible the things that they've experienced. And so far out of my realm of experience um, and what I've found, and I, I don't know if you guys find this too, but you know, so many of them, uh, especially World War II veterans and even Korean veterans, this is probably their first time talking mm-hmm. about it for, for quite a few of them mm-hmm. um, because it wasn't something that was done for, for decades. People came home from the war and they got on with their lives and they didn't dwell or talk very much about their experiences. So you're giving them, you're giving them a place to do that, which I think is wonderful. Yeah. That comes up a lot. They, people will say, especially when family are around, either during the interview or hearing the readback, and you know the spouse of sixty years will say, "I never heard that story," or the seventy-year-old child of the ninety-five-year-old veteran will say, "I didn't hear that story." And what what the people will say is, "Well, no one ever asked me, so I I didn't tell." And right. there's the asking, which we can do in a way that's different sometimes than, mm-hmm. than family can do. Yeah. Now, Thor, does it work pretty much the same at Madison or even the other? Because you're you're uh, the program manager for the whole program. Is that right? Right. Yeah. So it it varies from from site to site. So Susan has a um, and Susan's developed a great program at Boston that. I mean, fits that site tremendously. I think here we we have some involvement with students, um, but not as formal in as formal a way as they do at VA Boston. So here, most of our interviews are actually done by volunteers. So community volunteers who usually come to us <laughs> through a referral from friends or they hear about the program. And these are t- our volunteers are typically folks who have a, a writing background or a background in healthcare, and um, they're just interested in hearing veteran stories and, and giving them back that final story, that finished product um, that's so meaningful to, to the vets. And, but it's also a, a very meaningful experience for the volunteers who work here. Yeah, so so we work off volunteers. Other sites uh, do it differently. Um, it, there's not a prescribed way to do it, depending on which, uh, you know, the sort of the configuration and the resources available at a particular facility. It kind of develops organically from that. So some sites are, are volunteer-based and, and others have staff or student learners involved. And then what does it actually look like in a really practical sense? The person who's doing the interviewing goes in, do they record the interview and then it's transcribed or do they take notes? How does that all work? And then what does the final product look like outside of what's going into the chart? Yeah. So the um, 
So we record all the interviews um, and that's mostly just to help with writing the story up. Most of our volunteers take notes um, and then work with those to write the stories. Some volunteers work pretty much off the audio recording and others work primarily off their notes. So it, it varies also from the interviewer, sort of what their comfort level is. Um, we get great stories either way that uh, people can choose to do it either way. Um, so there's, there's some variety there in terms of how people, you know, what, what sources people work with, but the volunteers, you know, are very happy with the, with the work that they're doing for a lot of volunteers, especially if you're a writer, there are not many, ways to uh, contribute as a volunteer using your skill set. So this this program is a great way for for writers out there, for people who love to write, for them to volunteer, sort of put their shoulder to the wheel and uh, help out, um, but also using their specific skills. So it's, it's a great opportunity for them. And it's a great opportunity for anybody who's curious about other people's lives. Right. I mean, that's, that's the thing about what you all do and what anybody who's in this profession does, you know, right. whether it's for volunteer, you know, you're going out and having clients contact you because they want to have a book done or whatever, you know, whatever medium they want done. It's the, the conversations are on such a different level than in any other um, part of life. You know, if you're, if you're bosom buddies with somebody or you're, um, you know, you have your spouse to have deep conversations with, but these, these conversations where we're asking and we're, um, we're asking somebody about their life and we're bearing witness to their stories. I just think it's, like you said, Thor, it's so powerful, not just for the storyteller, but for the person who's on the receiving end of that. And it's such a gift. It's it's a gift that's being given to us as the listener. And I think it's a gift being given to them to be listened to because you know that's in short supply these days, having people really listen to you. Yeah, and I think especially, um, especially in the context of, of healthcare and and a hospital setting. I mean, I know it's really it's interesting. I think that I do think that the fact that we interview people bedside in in medical units in a hospital really contributes to kind of a very f sort of fascinating place to talk to people. Uh, there's a lot of you know emotions I would say under under the surface there. <laughs> Some, you know, anxiety about, you know, upcoming procedure, the recovery that you have when you discharge from the hospital. And there's also a lot of boredom in the hospital, too. So people are just sitting, waiting for stuff to happen, having stuff happen to them. And somebody comes into your room and says, well, I want to hear about you and your life. It's like, wow, OK, I'll do that. I think you had said that at your um, hospital in Madison, that you have volunteers go around and ask people if they want to have this done. Is it pretty much every patient that comes in is asked or, or how does that work? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends. Um, we we'll interview anybody who's in the hospital who's you know in, in a place where they can you know be interviewed and um we just go from door to door and and walk in and tell people about the program and ask them if they're interested it's kind of magical cuz you can be outside somebody's door and then you know 30 seconds 60 seconds later you're sitting by their bed and <laughs> talking to them about their life so that there's a really wonderful kind of whimsical magical part of the program where you're just um like wow here we are <laughs> so it's it's pretty cool 
And do you, uh, and this can be either Susan or Thor, either one of you can address this, but do you find that people, since it is kind of an instantaneous thing, it's not, you know, it's not like you're, there's a warm up session and then there's repeat interviews. It sounds like it's all done within one interview. Are people generally trusting enough at the, at the very outset of, you know, sitting across from a stranger, you know, from their, from their bed and, and talking about themselves? So about half of the people who we offer it to will say no thank you off the bat. So already there's that self-selecting group who's who's not going to be able to to do this with the stranger. And then I think what what you said Amy and also Thor but just there's something if there's somebody with you and they're sitting there and they're listening and they're quiet and they ask, you know, a question or two to get you going rather than saying, so tell me your life story. But once it starts, usually the person who's who's agreed to opt in, I've found um, people are open. And sometimes people are more open in that moment than perhaps they had anticipated that they would be. So I think that also emphasizes the importance of of reading it back to the veteran and giving them the opportunity to take out more things. And so I've, I've we certainly have the experience where people sort of want to take out some tidbits that are that are a little too raw or too personal. Um, but that in that moment when they were in in that mode of just talking and telling the story that they it just came out because it's part of the story. But an afterthought, they they wanted to pull back a little. I don't think I've ever had a client who has not said to me, I want to tell you something, but I don't mm-hmm. want this to be in the book. I mean, it's, yeah. it's just sort of a, yeah. it's a human, it's a human need. You know, we all want to be known. We want to, and we're known by telling our stories, you know, the things about our life. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we want it to be memorialized or, you know, preserved for forever. And that, that actually brings me to the next question, which is, um, do the families of the patients ever get involved in the storytelling? So the, I mean, I can just give a couple examples. Yes, family definitely gets involved in different ways. So sometimes that can be just sort of as, as passive as family members being in the room and just, you know, um, sitting in on the interview and maybe, you know, laughing here and there or chiming in. But we do get interviews where family members contribute really significantly to the interview. Uh, a lot of times that happens with couples who've been together a long time. And um, actually we, when that happens with the consent of that person, we actually write them into the interview and they get their own speaking role. So they end up in the story. <laughs> so. so the story goes into the charts and then does the patient get a hard copy or how does that work? Yeah, they get a hard, they get a hard copy. They get a printed copy. They actually get as many um, printed copies as they want. So that, that can vary from like one to, I think, I think we've printed out a hundred copies of a story for someone. Really? Else. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Oh, cool. That's, that goes with the program. So there's like no cost for that. It's just however many copies you want. So, yeah. And it's printed on a, on a decorative letterhead. So it's aesthetically a beautiful thing at the end too. Yeah. It's not just like a ugly printed out, you know, medical chart thing. It's, it's a beautiful, <laughs> yeah, good point. tangible thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's nice. But I, actually, I have found that, you know, people, um, very often I'll get calls from people and I'll ask, well, has anybody done a family story or a family history at all? And I am telling you, <laughs> there could be some really sorry looking yeah. Xerox copies of things, but yeah. those are mm-hmm. still so precious yeah. to the families. Um, it, you know, it doesn't, it's it's not about the aesthetics, but it's nice that you're making it look nice. I, I like that. <laughs> 
what about the um, the people who are so Susan? In your case, mm-hmm. it's the learners um, who are coming through through the VA. Um, Thor, I'm sure you've seen lots of you know learners and volunteers and all sorts of people who are the storytellers. Are they given any kind of training before they do these? Um, yeah, so I think I mean I think it's different between Madison and Boston. Here we train our volunteers by. They follow us on a, they shadow us on an interview and then we shadow them on an interview. So that's the, the training. Uh, I think a lot of that though is really just for our volunteers because they are not familiar with the medical setting. So a, a lot of the training is just them to sort of witness, you know, how do I walk about an inpatient unit? How do I do this? Cause you know, if, if you're a student trainee, all that familiarity is already there, but for our volunteers, some of them have never been in a hospital before. So there's a, there's just sort of a, um, you know, a contextual learning of like, how do I do this? Is this okay? Who can I talk to? All those sorts of basic questions. And then as far as on the student side, um, by the time the learners are in the hospital setting, when we get them, they've they've come with, you know, built into their training from wherever their home institution is. There's patient interviewing and there are standardized patients. So they have a lot of practice with the the interviewing and, you know, how to how to listen empathically. So they get a lot of that backdrop already. And so with the materials and the actual story, most of it is giving them guidance around how to ask the questions, what questions to ask and and what what the end product should look like because this sort of it's almost you know, it's almost like writing dialogue for for our purposes. So that's very different than the typical medical writing that people are used to doing. So sometimes the learners will default back into making it very formal and putting it into the third person. So mm-hmm. sometimes that's a tweak we have to do. But as far as um, you know, asking questions and and listening, they have that, you know, built in. And do you give the volunteers or the learners any kind of uh, question prompts? Like, are there um, are there things that help them in the interview process to know what to ask or to kind of um, give them ideas oh, on what oh to yes. ask? Yes, we have an interview guide. It's very structured, which I think is part of why it is successful in all these different venues. It, it's really structured. So there's a question guide. It's suggested questions, just where to start and. But often, and I tell this to the learners, you'll start with the first question or two, um, you know, where'd you grow up? What was it like? And then often that might be the last question that you ask until the very end. And so we have, I have my own favorite questions that I like to ask um, that I've highlighted on our question guide. But yeah, everyone asks, we all, all, all the people in Boston, we all have the same guide. It's an interview guide. Oh, that's great. So that was developed for the whole program. Everybody that uh, no matter which VA facility you're at, um, they're using that that guide or is that just for Boston? So I think there are they're not exactly the same. I don't know, Thor, on the other sites. It's definitely not exactly the same, but it's a, a variation on a very, very similar theme. And it goes sort of in a chronologic order. And then the the ending tends to be more of the deeper meaning type questions and lessons learned and things like that. There you go. <laughs> well, that's exactly how I structure my interviews too. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, usually what I what I start with are is not specifically about the person themselves, but usually you know a generation or two back. You know, tell me about your grandparents. Did you have a favorite relative, a favorite uncle? Because those are you know those are kind of the soft lobs, and that gets them warmed up, and that 
builds that trust. And, and then, and like you said, Susan, I mean, very often it's, it can be 95% just sitting there and listening because Mm -hmm. one memory begets another, begets another, and you know, they just all come bubbling to the surface. Okay. So I'm curious what uh, you said, you have a few favorite questions. Can you, can you think of any off the top of your head, a couple of them? Oh yeah. I, I like to ask people, what are they proud of? And um, what advice would they pass on to others? I like to ask people, what is their legacy? And I also like to ask, uh, what would you do differently if you could? Oh, boy. but really, I really like the proud. I like asking people what they're proud of or what, what's their greatest accomplishment. And most of the time, it's their family. Mm-hmm. And that's for men and women veterans. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And then have you ever been surprised? I mean, are there things that just came out of left field that you did not expect? Because you've done you've done quite a few of these yourself, right? Where you've sat down and, and interviewed patients. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a I've lot. About 80 by <laughs> <now>. <laughs> You're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> I want to do a hundred. I think I think the things maybe that were surprised hearing about family, that's less surprising. Um what is surprising when people talk about their families and the family is around and there's so much emotion there. And it turns out that when the veteran says, I'm most proud of my wife or my daughter, but they've maybe never said that to that person. So that's, that's a surprising moment sometimes. And I've been surprised how consistent people are about, I'm stressing the importance of education. Mm. And a lot of folks were able to go, go to school on the GI bill and a lot of them found a lot of pride in um, getting back to school and getting an education. Right. That changed the life's trajectory for an awful lot of people. The GI yeah. Bill for, you know, for education and for buying a house, for, the, for um, getting the, the low-cost mortgages. So, uh, Thor, um, you've written a lot of these yourself, too. Is that right? Yeah, I have. Yeah. So, do you have any, uh, any favorite questions or... Um, any way of starting the the process that you like or that works really well? Well, I think I think kind of similar to you, Amy. I um, I I start with family and from you know where people were born, um, just as a way to work myself, work our work our way into the interview. Um, and I, I do tend to place a lot of emphasis on that. I think when I talk to people, both the sort of the family of origin, but also the family that the veteran may have started. And I find that those are really deep connection points for people to talk about the things that matter to them. Um, and so I'll, you know, I'm always buying little family family charts and, and trees in my notes because um, it helps me come back later in the interview. Um, I think the I don't know if I have favorite questions. I would say that the, the the favorite part for me of an interview is when I get to a point where the veteran is thinking about how to say something that they haven't said before and finding the words for something that's either wonderful or, or even terrible um, that they want to say. And they're in this place where they just haven't found the words yet. And in those moments when I can keep my mouth shut <laughs> and not jump in and um, let them find those words, I find that those are like the hearts of the stories that I write. And allowing for that silence is such an important thing, too, um, because generally in 
regular conversation with people. We don't, we don't let silence happen very often, but um, I, I think that's one of the things that newer people in the field have to really come to grips with, like becoming comfortable with the silence, because like you said, it's, it may be something that they've never thought of and they're formulating for the first time. Um, and they, they just need those moments to, to get the story out. So you are a therapist. Does that, um, well, two things. I would imagine that makes you really intuitive and good at reading people. But does it ever come into play that people, when they're talking about their past, um, that traumatic things come up? Um, does it ever tip over into being a little bit more like therapy than a storytelling session? Um, <clears throat> I mean, I think it, I think people definitely talk about things that are people definitely talk about things that are traumatic and things that are difficult for them to say um, or, or or wouldn't say in a normal conversation. I mean, I would say that I don't. My role is really different as a as a listener and a interviewer than it is as a therapist, and I try to be aware of that as I can. Uh, uh, I, I mean, it's an interesting question. I, I feel like you know, as a as a as a trained, you know, clinician, your role is, is, it's a helping role. It's a role where you're working with people to come up with solutions to things that they're struggling with. Um, and, you know, and for, for mental health, it's, you know, it, it's emotional and, and psychological, um, pain that, that people are in and you're trying to work with them to help that. So as a listener, um, you know, as an interviewer, my role is a little different. My, my role is you know, purely a, um, purely a listening role and purely a, a reflecting back role with the story. Uh, so sometimes it's a little hard to not want to jump in and, and, and help and give suggestions, but I, I try not to do that. I had a colleague once describe it um, because, you know, we all get in the situations where, where somebody is going yeah. to eventually get to a hard story to tell. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes there's tears, sometimes they'll shut down. And this colleague said, it's our role as the listener to be the steady rock that they can come back to once they've the, the crest of the, the emotional wave has abated, that we're there to that, you know, we're sitting across from them waiting for them to to come back to the story because most of us are not trained therapists and that's not our role. Like you said, um, when you're, when you're doing the stories, it's not your role, even though you are a therapist. Right. I love that. I mean, that's a great analogy. I think that's a, and, and that's, I think where your sort of steady presence in the interview and your silence, cause silence is sometimes a respectful way to let people get to the to the words that they want to get to and to just be there as that, as that point to return to. I think that's a great, a great image. Um, so coming back to that idea of emotion and, and there's a lot of emotion plays out in these interviews in a big way. And I, and I do think that um, I was really struck Susan by what you said, the, the comment that you got from, from the provider at your facility who said she reads the stories at the end of the day. I think in some ways for providers, the work we do is really actually very emotional work. Um, you know, we're, we're actually involved with people's lives and with their deaths and with their families. And I don't know. Um, sometimes, you know, our, sometimes in our training we're um, taught to, we're taught not to feel those because we, you know, we have a role to play as providers where we're, we have sort of a, you know, a distance that we have to maintain. But while we maintain that distance, the emotions that are stirred up are, are, are definitely there. And I think the stories 
um, the stories can be a touchstone for those emotions for people. Um, and so frequently if I get stories from, from volunteers that I've read that I haven't read before and I'll be sitting there and all of a sudden I'll be crying and I'm like, okay, here I am crying, you know, and it, it feels good to have that feeling and to be reminded of, you know, sort of the, this emotional undercurrent of connection that we have with all the people who are around us. Um, and, and while we can't be aware of it all the time, because I think that would sort of Im impact our, um, you know, how, how well we can function, you know, and, and be providers, but we do want to be reminded that that's there. Right. And, and the stories are, are a really powerful way to do that. I, I like the way you put that, the undercurrent of the emotion that connects us, um, because I, I think that's beautiful. And I think this helps us all to grow, you know, we're growing more empathetic as we're hearing these stories, but it just, you know, it, it widens our horizons. It just, I think it increases our humanity to know each other's stories in such an intimate way. Well, I did want to ask if there is an opportunity, if listeners want to volunteer, um, is there an opportunity for that? How, how would they go about doing that? And where do they go to connect with you all? If, if they're in the Boston area, I would connect with Susan. <laughs> um, um, and, um, so I don't know how you how you want to do that. Um, it, outside of Boston, probably the best thing would be to contact uh, myself, um, and then I could let them know if there's a if there's a site near them where they're doing the program. Right now we're at we're at twenty four twenty five VAs, and obviously that's a that's you know it's a lot, but it's also just you know there's one hundred and sixty facilities in the country, so um, we're still in the early stages of of spreading it to all the VAs. So. And what is the goal? Is it to to have it at all of the VAs? That's my goal. <laughs> Definitely my goal. <laughs> um, it, it might take a while, but I think I think we'll get there. I, I mean, I think things are sort of plugging along, and with with uh, you know all the exciting stuff that's happening at different sites like Boston and other sites, I think I think we will get there. It might take you know some years, but I think we're on our way. Well, congratulations to both of you for for getting this up and running, and it's it just sounds like incredible work that you're doing for all parties concerned. Um, and I'm really, really happy. I, I have a fond um, place in my heart for the VA just because my dad was a patient there. And I have to tell you, it's the only time I ever baked cookies and brought them to the staff. Oh, wow. Hospital because they were just, they were wonderful. Wow. They were so wonderful. Nice. So yeah, I wish you all the luck and I'll make sure to get your emails and contact information and put them on links in the show notes. Right. So if anybody wants to reach out and, and maybe become part of the, the My Life, My Story program, they can, they can do that with your help. So thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And good luck in the future. Thank you. Thank you. This was a lot it of fun. It was really fun. Yeah. Great. Okay. Take care. Bye.
And that does it for our interview with Susan Nathan and Thor Ringler from My Life, My Story. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to learn more about My Life, My Story, head over to thelifestorycoach.com and look for episode 38. I'll have links to the things that we were talking about in today's show notes. And I hope that maybe this gave you some ideas on what you can do with your own business or maybe inspired you to do some volunteering, especially if you're a writer. Check out the local VA hospital in your area and see if they have this program. And if not, heck, maybe it's something that you could start. Thanks for listening. And until next time, go out and save someone's story.